There are lots of unknowns about the situation in Gaza, despite our continuous coverage. It's grotesque in some ways what's happening there and what little we know about the wider situation. In other ways, some analysts say, not much is new. Is it important to look at it from a wide lens or more pertinent to notice the nuances? When Hamas was founded in 1987 as a Palestinian resistance movement, its founding principles were the rejection of the state of Israel and the assertion of Palestinians' rights to self-determination. The tension has taken many shapes and turns over the years and has been marked by multiple violent confrontations in 2008, 14, 2021, and this year, which is the most violent of them all, with the highest death toll. A staggering 11,200 people. But the real numbers are unknown, as thousands remain under rubble. We're talking about people here. Families, mothers, children, the elderly, the disabled. People with cancer, people who have had their futures and dreams taken away from them and have left their loved ones bereaved and distraught. More than one month now into the Israel-Gaza war, many analysts are anticipating it's not going to end anytime soon. Calls for ceasefires from the international community have fallen on deaf ears, and hostage-release negotiations are proving fruitless. Israel seems to be so adamant on destroying Hamas and its military leaders. They've even stormed the Gaza Strip's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, which has been under siege, an effective morgue as people die due to the lack of electricity, and babies breathe their last as their incubators stop running. But there are many theories on the timeline, how the war will end, the possibilities of a reoccupation of Gaza, and the future of the Strip and Hamas. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. Joining me in the studio today is Hussein Ibish, who is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute and a U.S. affairs columnist for The National, to talk about the current conflict and its future. I think the question that I posed at the top is, do you think it's important to look at it from a wider angle, this conflict in Gaza, from before October 7? Or is it more important to look at the little details of the conflict right now, the things that make it different, maybe? I think both are indispensable. You you can't do without both. And what's interesting is different people and different sources of information and analysis. I tend to do the 30,000 feet view of things, but I think it's incredibly important that there are reporters digging for the granular on the ground stories in Gaza, the way the war is inflicting a hellish situation on the people there, what the details of their suffering is, the details also of the military situation between Israel and Hamas. It's all very significant. At the same time, I think you can, if you focus only on those granular details, then you can lose the forest for the trees. You need also to have a very high altitude, wide aperture view, which looks at the situation in its broader context. So I I don't see that you can do without either. Both are absolutely necessary and they're equally necessary. They are both indispensable. And if you had analysis that was completely free of granular data, detail, facts, the harsh realities of life, of daily life for human beings, you will not understand what motivates them and as individuals and as collectivities, including national collectivities. But at the same time, if you don't have the uh, broader view, 
then I think you may miss especially the motivations of entities, Israel's motives, Hamas's motives. I don't think they're entirely clear to people, especially if they focus on the granular stuff, because these political leaders tend to be motivated by broader aims, which are almost independent of um, the human reality. Do you believe that one of the two sides, I mean, both sides think that they're right, Mm. right? Yeah. But there are so many different factors to consider. Do you believe, first of all, that this conflict is different than the previous years? And also, if you do think it's different, what makes it different? This is really an interesting question. So I think we don't know if it's categorically different or not. When, uh, let's go back to this. I I think you hinted at the beginning of your question at a moral or an ethical audit of the situation. I'd be happy to do that uh, if you want to follow up. Please, yes. But let's take the bulk of your question first. Okay, there's a pattern, a very strong pattern to what Israel sees as its border wars with Islamist organizations that they regard as on their borders. And Hamas is one, and of course Hezbollah is the other. And before, before Hezbollah, the PLO in Lebanon, and before that, the PLO and other Fed'in in Jordan. So this has been going on really since just after the 67 war, and even before, even into the 50s, but really in a big way, it, it started after the 67 war, after the occupation began. And there's a real pattern here. What usually happens, sometimes Israel initiates these things, but usually not, because Israel is effectively a status quo power. Now, the pattern usually begins, therefore, with a, an act, a provocation or an attack or some kind of an action aimed at uh, Israel, at Israeli soldiers, at Israelis or something like that, by one of these groups. And in recent decades, it has been Hamas and or Hezbollah, depending. And since the 2006 war, Hezbollah has been rather careful not to get into another uh, battle with Israel, and they're being very careful now, which we can talk about why that is, and I'll be very happy to explain Hezbollah's thinking, which is interesting. But it's really Hamas that wanted to press the issue now for various reasons. I'd love also to talk about Hamas's motivations, because I think Hamas is badly misunderstood. I think they are using a kind of very effective sort of diversion in their rhetoric. So they get people to think about what they're doing one way, but what they're actually doing is something else, in my view. So we're used to this pattern. There's an action by Hamas or Hezbollah or before that, uh, PLO or whoever, and, or Fedain before the PLO. Okay. And then Israel responds in an overwhelming way. And they have a doctrine of disproportionality that predates the state of Israel. It was practiced by the Haganah and the terrorist groups around it, like Stern and Irgun, before the state. It's disproportionality, not two to one, 10 to one. So you see, already we're reaching 10 to one because it was 1,200 Israelis, mixture of uh, probably, uh, it's hard to know, like 30% combatants, 70% civilians. And we have now 10 to one, with a similar ratio, although the number of children killed in Gaza is much, much more than children killed in Israel because of the nature of the population, really. I mean, it's a very young, a lot of children in Gaza, let's put it that way. It's an extraordinarily young population. And what generally happens is the war goes on, 
with mounting atrocities, the United States initially endorses everything, then it becomes increasingly uncomfortable. Usually there is a definitive atrocity. So usually there's something like that, and the war ends, and then we return to the status quo ante. Now, is this another version of that? Well, on December 8th, sorry, October 8th, the day after this attack and killing spree in southern Israel, uh, led by Hamas, but not only Hamas, Israel declared Hamas must be destroyed. Hamas delende est. That's it. It's got to go. This is an unachievable war aim. So if you stick to that, you've written the victory speech for the other side. You have condemned yourself to a political defeat by definition, because Hamas is not a list of individuals and a set of equipment and infrastructure that you can kill and blow up. Hamas is a brand. It's an idea. So you can't do it. But this is the big question. If Israel destroys and kills and smashes and leaves and goes back to the siege as it was between 2007 and, and October 7th, then it's another war of, of the same pattern, just bigger. If Israel stays, then uh, it's completely different. And that's what we have to find out. So does Hamas then claim a victory? I think by the mere fact that it's holding on for so long, I mean, the fact that this has become a protracted war, this... There are two kinds of victory for Hamas. It's going to be very difficult for Israel because of its rhetorical overreaction um, to deny Hamas a kind of victory. But there are two kinds of victories. One is a, a fake victory, and the other is a real victory. And let's be clear about this. The intention of any insurgency group, guerrilla group, terrorist group, whatever kind of group that is fighting with little power against a large dominant power, when they engage in spectacular overkill, when they engage in acts that are designed to, to strike fear, horror, and panic in the other side, they are trying to provoke an overreaction. They are hoping that the bigger power which they cannot damage that much on their own, will go crazy and inflict upon itself harm that the insurgent group or terrorist or guerrilla group cannot do. So Hamas, and this is not unique, this is what groups like this try to do. This is what Hamas tried to do on October 7th. I think they were successful beyond their expectations, but they really did want to kill as many people as possible. They wanted to take as many hostages as possible. I don't think they thought they could kill more than 1,000 Israelis. I don't think they thought they could capture more than 200 hostages. But, you know, even if it was half or one quarter of these numbers, it would have changed the game with the Israelis, and it would have provoked a huge reaction. And we know, because the Hamas leaders say so, both before in, in secret documents and now openly, that they were prepared to do it again and again until Israel overreacted. If Israel did not react on after October 7th the way that they are now, Hamas was going to do it again until Israel did react like this. They wanted this war desperately. Now, what about Hamas? Hamas, why did they want this overreaction by Israel? What, why? What, what were they seeking? Yeah. What were they seeking? Uh, well, they. I think there were several layers. Do you think that Hamas actually drew up certain scenario. I mean, 
Do you think that they're thinking beyond? Yes, be- I do. Yeah, I, I do. You I, think that there's some foresight there? I really do. I am uh, not alone in thinking this, but I'm in a very small minority thinking of this. So the general wisdom here in Abu Dhabi that I have found among the wisest people is that Hamas is a militia group and therefore they like warfare and therefore they wanted to get into another battle. I understand that. It makes a lot of sense. It's true when you're just really a militia and you sit around governing, getting water for two million people and sending kids to school. And that's not what you're made for. You're yeah, made yeah, for yeah. a fight. So yeah, then yeah. ultimately you have to have a fight. And you know your terrain but and I, you have your tunnels yeah. and you have everything. Yeah. So exactly. So I think this is close to the reality, but I don't think it gets it uh, because I think there is foresight. I think the plan A, which was a wild hope that Hamas did not fully expect, but they were hoping is that the war would spread very quickly beyond Gaza and become a regional war that changed everything, that restructured the region. But they didn't know that was going to happen. The main two things they were hoping for is that the meetings that they had in Beirut last summer with Quds Force people and Hezbollah people, when they talked in very general terms, and all of this was reported in detail in the Lebanese Arabic language press and now came out in the American press in English and what have you, but it's all true, because it was, at the time, no one paid attention in the West, but in Lebanon, it was reported. You know, they were having these meetings, and Hamas talked in very general terms, very vague terms, about a military action against Israel. And they were given vague encouragement, and uh, Hezbollah apparently said generally that, oh, yeah, we would be part of this, don't worry, we'll be right behind you. But nobody knew about October 7th. No one was informed. If there were some Quds Force people who knew, they didn't report it to the Supreme National Council in, in Tehran. I don't think they did know. I don't think the Hamas di- diplomats in Doha knew. Yeah. I don't think, his, I know Hezbollah didn't know. Yeah. That for sure. That's what was reported. I mean, Khaled Mish'al and the others, they apparently they were kept in the yeah, dark. I'm yeah. sure. And, and that's, by the way, that's similar to what happened during 9-11. That's right. It just was, it was kept in very, very small group, very, very small and disconnected groups that didn't actually know about each other. They so, didn't know about the water so operation. So what, what Al-Qaeda did is they used cellular structures so that nobody knew anybody. Yeah. And that's a typical cellular structure. Hamas is not a cellular structure. What they did is they used professional military style secrecy. Uh, it was not cellular. It's institutionalized secrecy. The only people who knew were the Qassam Brigade's people, their friends in, in, in Islamic Jihad and some of these other small groups who also were tipped off and knew. And, of course, the political leader who was the author of this, Yasinwar. Other than that, I think almost nobody. Yeah. Almost nobody knew. And they're all in Gaza. They're nobody, all in, uh, nobody abroad, n- you don't n- think? N- not one person. Mm. I don't think so. Because mm. how I, would you have communicated that abroad without being well, you're, found you, out? That's the thing. That's why you do it, is that you'll be found out. And then Israel will have a robust defense. And I think Hamas was shocked at how weak the Israeli defense was. And that they had the run of some of these villages for two and a half days, three days, almost. And they got away with hundreds of prisoners and, I mean, killed all kinds of people. So they did, I think they were shocked. But look, they were hoping two things. They, they branded this as a, a, an Islamic uprising from the beginning. They called it the Al-Aqsa flood, right? The Al-Aqsa deluge. They branded it with Al-Aqsa. They were hoping the fighting would spread naturally to the West Bank 
and then into East Jerusalem and bring in Al-Aqsa. Because once Gaza, it pulls at Palestinian heartstrings, but not Arabs and Muslims around the world. I mean, people care about the Palestinians in Gaza, but the word Gaza does not resonate beyond Palestine. Al-Aqsa sets people on fire from Indonesia to Malaysia and back in a real way, in a real way, right? And the reason that this war has not spread is that one thing, probably, maybe the only thing, that all four parties that could have made this a regional war, any one of them could have done it successfully, which is Israel, Hezbollah, Iran, and the United States. Why do you think it's not a regional they war? All, well, I'll tell you. Uh, they all agreed it shouldn't spread. It's not a regional war because the pecking, at, it's like a little bird pecking at the outside, like at the Israel-Lebanon border, or the attacks on U.S. forces in Syria, which are being responded to, or the Houthis lobbing missiles in somewhere. They're all minor. They're all contained. None of them force the hand of the other party. All of them can be dealt with minor responses. None of them are categorical, which is exactly what Hamas did when they, on October 7th. They wanted a, a war, and they decided to launch one for reasons of their own. Now, th- none of these other groups have done that. And Israel hasn't done it, which is interesting. The U.S. wants nothing to do with that. I think Iran is very reluctant. Gaza is not culturally, religiously, or strategically significant to Iran or to Hezbollah. They're not going to go to war for Gaza. They might do it for Al-Aqsa, for Deen Allah, for Islam. Yeah, that maybe. But for Gaza, for Palestinians, it's a big deal. For Iranian, I don't know. It's, my, it's minor. I mean, they love to have Hamas harassing Israel. Great. But they're not going to waste their... Hezbollah is their trump card. For what? For deterring Israel from attacking Iran and blowing up nuclear facilities and other things. Because Hezbollah's missile arsenal will probably kill 100,000 Israelis before Hezbollah is totally destroyed and Lebanon is totally destroyed. It is a force of that scale. Yes, so you're saying that, do you think that Hamas is disappointed at the lack of reaction and... Of course. And um, do you think that Hamas expected not just a wider reaction from Hezbollah and Iran, but from like the Arab world? And do you think it's naive of them to think that? Because... Mm. The question is, so most of the people that have been killed are civilians at the end oh, of yeah, the day. So, by far. so do the Arabs then have a moral responsibility uh, uh, to, 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 to step, I don't know, to step in? Militarily? No, not militarily, okay. but I to mean, do more. Look, Hamas, I don't think expected much from the Arab world. The Palestinians are on their own and on their own in two, two parts, so, uh, on their own even from each other in a way. So I don't think they expected much from the Arab world. Did they expect Hezbollah to get involved? I think they thought that if it could really be the Al-Aqsa something, then yes. But if it got contained to Gaza, I think they're not surprised. They're very disappointed. And I think they're disappointed with Hezbollah, but they're not surprised because they really didn't know what Hezbollah was going to do. It can come down to the lack of coordination, the communication, partly that and partly the lack of any rational reason for Hezbollah to get involved, and so many rational reasons not to get involved. What Hamas is not disappointed with is Israel's reaction. It's expected, no? It is what they wanted. Yeah. It is exactly what they 
expected, wanted. And if they didn't get it after October 7th, they would 7, have kept going. They would have kept going. They have said so, and it fits my analysis perfectly. Why? Because Hamas wants to take over the Palestinian national movement. It cannot do it from Gaza. Hamas was in a ditch in Gaza. The, they were losing support from Turkey. Their leaders were being quietly thrown out of Ankara. Then the momentum in the battle against Israel had shifted decisively to the West Bank to these inner city armed youth groups, which are not affiliated right. with anybody, right. like the Lion's Den in Nablus Old City or the Jenin Brigade in Jenin. And these are not uh, control. They have no connection to Fatah, no connection to Hamas, and they can't stand Islamic Jihad at all. And so they're just on their own out there, and, and they're reacting to living under occupation and taking up arms as people do, as people inevitably will, young men especially, will not just sit there and say, oh, okay, I have no rights, that's great. I'm just going to go to work and maybe grow some grapes or something. No, it's not what human beings do. They, they fight, so especially young men. They don't have families, they don't have jobs, they don't, and they do have guns. They're disillusioned. They're, I mean, they're, they're going to fight. Yeah, they're yeah, going to fight. Yeah. So, they are. so this is where the movement had the armed struggle had gone to. It had gone to the inner cities of Nablus and Jenin and other places in Area A. And Hamas, there are other problems Hamas had, but let's just say the situation they got into was deteriorating. They had no means of correcting it, of stopping the deterioration, and there was a huge threat looming, which was a potential Israeli-Saudi-American deal, which would have included a significant Palestinian component. What that negotiation is, two, two parts. It is Saudi Arabia negotiating with Washington for a, a defense agreement, and Washington negotiating with Israel for a significant Palestinian component that will satisfy the Saudis and satisfy the, the Palestinians, the PLO, enough that they don't overreact. And then, at that point, the PLO can say, and the PA, look, Hamas is getting you nowhere in Gaza. We are, yeah, I mean, our quiet diplomacy is not great. We are the first to say it hasn't worked very well, but we just got a bunch of stuff without giving up anything, and we're, this is the way to go. We are going to eventually get our state through diplomacy and politics, and not through armed struggle because we don't have the power to defeat the Israelis. We've tried it many times. It doesn't work. Hamas needed to stop that political and financial windfall for Fatah in the West Bank. It was the last straw for them. I mean, they were already in huge trouble in terms of the national movement. They needed something different. They needed to change the equation. They want to lure Israel into a long-term ground presence in the urban streets of Gaza, in Gaza City, in Rafah, in Khan Yunis, in all of these places, the refugee camps, etc. Israel comes in, and as Netanyahu says, we have to maintain security because no one else will do it for us. Now you have Israeli troops patrolling Gaza. Now you get the, what Hamas really wants, the insurgency. Hamas wants a long-term insurgency on the ground in Gaza against Israeli soldiers, from which they will, they, even if they have to build it from nothing at the beginning, eventually you can do it. It doesn't take much to make an IED. It doesn't take much to get a pistol. If you're willing to die, which a lot of pe people are, you can kill soldiers one at a time, two at a time, here and there, every week eventually, weekly. 
And then you say to the Palestinians and their supporters around the world, we are the ones who are fighting the occupiers here over control of Palestinian land in Gaza. And we are fighting, we are dying, we are killing them every week. You wave the bloody shirt, point to the PA and say, you are the gendarmerie of the occupation. And you PLO guys sit at the table listening to the birds and crickets and no talks ever happen. We are the national movement. Yep. We are the national movement. Get out of here. We're, and in the end, get the prize, which is the PLO, and get control of that thing. So this is not that unusual, this rage. And it is significant, by the way, that almost everyone in Gaza, I mean 90% plus, are refugees or the children of refugees from those areas of southern Israel that they attacked. The refugees in Gaza are unique among Palestinian refugees in being right next to their former villages, right next to it. They just run across and then they're, they're where they used to come from. The, the people in, say, in Balata are really far. The, the refugees in Jordan are really far. The, the, the refugees in Lebanon are really far from where they came. That's not true in Gaza. They no. can see their former land. Right. And when they attacked those villages in southern Israel, it didn't matter to them that this is the hotbed of Israeli peace camp. A lot of the people they killed and captured were among the most dovish Israelis in Israel. Didn't matter. The point is, these are the colonial settlers living in our villages, not our country writ large, our villages, specifically mine. And the rage that, that fuels that can't be underestimated, right? This is not, uh, it is in part an attack on, from Hamas's point of view, it's the leadership they're thinking about, Israel writ large, the, the Palestinian struggle. So the guy with the gun who is so cruel, why is he like that? Well, one of the reasons is that he is finally going back to his area and getting at the people who threw them out. And there is a fury behind that. that, that the gets, psychology matters behind it. It matters basically. a lot. It's it matters just, a lot. It's not just a bunch of barbarians holding guns and shouting Allahu no, Akbar. Right? That's right. There is a bloodlust, but it's not decontextualized. Right. It emerges from a very specific history. And the history is significant. It doesn't excuse anything. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it less horrible but it does make it more understandable. So what I'm getting at here is that this is not unique historically, and it's not all that surprising in terms of psychology. Politically, it's by the leaders, it's motivated by a desire to create an insurgency against the occupation in a year or two years that will propel them into, finally, into power among the Palestinians because they have remained the challengers, they are still the challengers. They lost the presidency. They won the biggest group in parliament. They are still the challengers. They do not control the PLO. Whoever controls the PLO represents the Palestinians. There is no document among Palestinians, among Arabs, internationally, Israel, the UN, which says anything other than the PLO is the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, period. Even Hamas does not dispute this because disputing it means throwing away the diplomatic presence. What they do is they criticize the PLO and say they should lead it. 
And this is the point, you see. So, yeah. So what do you think is going to happen? Okay, I have no idea. Because the main decider in this is Netanyahu. Do you think he's doing anything? I mean, does it look like he's frazzled? Do you think yes. that he's on top of everything? No, I don't think he's on top of everything. I don't think anyone can be on top of everything. I think right now he's calculating that the best way for him to stay out of prison is to stay in power. And the best way to stay in power is to continue this war. But he's not the sole decision maker. It's not like the U.S. president who can do what he wants. He's in a parliamentary system. He has Benny Gantz sitting next to him. He had to overrule Galant about attacking Hezbollah. He is, a, generally speaking, a cautious man. Over time, the Israeli security establishment is surely going to realize that totally destroying Hamas is not a viable option and that there are only two scenarios at the end of the initial phase of conflict when they've killed who they want to kill and destroyed what they want to destroy. It is Hamas, it is Gaza, it, well, you could have a complete chaos, but that obviously is a very bad scenario. It's either ha Hamas crawls out of the rubble and rebuilds and declares victory, as I said, or Israel stays, and it's even a bigger victory for Hamas because then they get their insurgency. It's going to take time. It's going to be difficult. A lot of them will be killed. But believe me, they can do it. I mean, uh, any group that can organize October 7th can organize an insurgency against Israeli troops in Rafah. That's it. In, in Khan Yunus, they're going to get killed if they stay. Maybe not right away, but sooner rather than later. Because you can get a gun and you can make a bomb. And you're going to do it. And you know the terrain and you have the tunnels and you and have you're been preparing for this, Ex right? You're preparing for this. There are, uh, without a doubt, there are pockets of Hamas people either in Gaza or nearby, in Sinai, in Jordan, in Lebanon, somewhere, who are being reserved to make the insurgency after most of the leaders and main fighters get killed, because that's what's going to happen. Yep, contingency and, plans, right? Well, it's the main plan, in my opinion. I don't think it's a I think it's plan A. I really think it's plan A, actually. Many people disagree with this, but you have Hamas leaders coming out now, and I've been saying this since October 8th, okay, so it was my initial reaction. Now we see Hamas leaders saying, we are, are searching for a permanent state of war with Israel. But what are they imagining? Of course they're imagining an insurgency, right? What kind of permanent war is this? What are they thinking of? They're thinking of what I was telling you. And this is the reason I've given you their, their reason, which is a real political reason. They say their aim is to resurrect the Palestinian national movement on the international stage. It's not. That's a great way of explaining what they're doing. And... It may even be a side effect of what they're doing, but it's not the main reason. The main reason, as always with human beings, is political power within their own community and movement and organization first, and then you deal with the enemies like Israel and whoever else. But as a Palestinian faction, until you control the PLO and until you lead the movement at a formal level, internationally and at home, you are out <laughs> and you need to be in. And that's the, that is the prime directive. That's the main objective. Uh, my, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think it gets overlooked because people are used to thinking of Hamas versus Israel as the main thing. And at a certain level it is, but not primarily. 
And they're used to thinking about this in terms of a national struggle that is already defined, and it's not. It's being contested. And this is part of the contestation between Islamists and nationalists. What we've learned from this conversation is that context is everything. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Headlines. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, please subscribe to every episode and follow our coverage on thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison, and I'm your host, Nadal Tahir.